you, worship team, for leading us into the presence of the Lord. And Paul and Don, thank you for leading that class. That sounds so interesting. I was sitting over there thinking, man, i got to figure out how I can get over uh, there to hear it. Because it is encouraging to know that there are just phases, and some come and some go. I think you can tell by looking at me, I'm in the um, I'm going to pull all my hair out <laughs> phase. So I don't know when that will uh, lighten up, but it is a phase. And uh, our theme this whole, since August, has been we want you to experience the transforming power of the gospel. And if you're going to experience its power in your life, there's also phases that you have to go through. There's a certain movement to that. And the first great phase is you, the foundational phase, is that you have to know that you've been created in love and called for a purpose. So since August, we've been looking at those two dynamics. We've been created in love, called for a purpose. And we've heard Jesus' call to Bartimaeus, come, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus' call to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And God's call to come to the celebration, come to the waters, buy, eat, drink. And then we've looked at we've been created fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're going to wrap that kind of idea up this morning by looking at Jeremiah chapter 1. Because it's a beautiful passage that embodies and encompasses what it means to be created and called. Created in love, called for a purpose. And in the first chapter of Jeremiah, we hear God speaking to a young Jeremiah who was probably only about 13 at the time, and he's revealing to him the eternal love and the purposeful plan that not only gave him life, but is also going to give his life meaning and shape and purpose. And in many ways, this is a grace-filled dialogue that we have the privilege to hear. And as we are listening to this dialogue between God and Jeremiah, we need to remember that this isn't just a dialogue between God and Jeremiah. It's a dialogue to all of us. These aren't just words for him. As we listen in, this is also a gift for our life. So this foundational truth that Jeremiah created in love, called for a purpose, was meant to sustain him through all of his ups and his downs. And if you know much about Jeremiah's life, there were going to be many, many downs, deep, dark downs. But this is going to sustain him and hold him and help him to get through. So we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 10. We're going to key in on verses 4 through 10, but verses 1, 2, and 3 kind of set the stage about who he is. So the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anatoth in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. So the theme of Jeremiah, the tension, is that it's the word of the Lord that comes through the words of Jeremiah. So like in the men's Bible study, we're looking at our, how we understand God's word, and Jeremiah is a beautiful book to help us make sense of that, because it's the words of the Lord that come through his prophets and apostles and his servants. So it's the words of Jeremiah, but these words are actually the word of the Lord that's coming through him. And then notice the days, the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, most of those names just kind of go over our heads, and we probably didn't even pronounce them right because they don't have a whole lot of uh, meaning to us. But this is setting the stage for Jeremiah, his life, his ministry. He was uh, a preacher's son, Hilkiah. Now, you kind of, we, we don't hear that Hilkiah is one of the most famous 
priest in the day. It's kind of like hearing your Billy Graham son kind of puts you in a certain context. And then Jeremiah, he was always known as the weeping prophet. Have you seen the image that Michelangelo paints of him on the Sistine Chapel? He's bent over. He's weeping because um, of what, he, you know, his, his call. He wrote Lamentations, which was one of the deepest uh, heartfelt, you know, heartbreaking books. But Hilkiah's son c- comes from Anatoth. This is a priestly town close enough to Jerusalem to where you can see time span, 40 years of labor, 40 years of being a weeping prophet. He comes on the scene in the midst of one of those great worldwide convulsions Israel is caught in between three great empires. You have um, Egypt to the south, you have Assyria to the north, and Babylon to the east, and they're all uh, competing for world domination, and one empire's rising, another one's falling, and so for 40 years, they're caught in the throes of um, world catastrophe. So it's almost like, imagine if World War II didn't last six to, you know, seven years, but if it lasted 45, and you were living in the midst of it the whole time. This is Jeremiah's time. He's living in one of these strange days. And then three different reigns that he has to serve under. Josiah is the first one. Josiah, the great reformer, the last great hope of the people of Israel. Uh, Exile, punishment has been promised. But then there's hope that Josiah, uh, they find the law. They're going to bring reform and bring renewal. And so Jeremiah starts his ministry and his life with all of the youthful energy and eagerness that like, we're going to be the ones that are going to turn the ship around. You know how every generation thinks the generation before them has kind of wrecked everything and they're going to be the ones who are going to fix it all. And so they had all of that youthful energy and God was blessing Josiah and he was the last of the good kings who really was trying to bring renewal and restoration. And then this mystery, God takes him young. Why? And then his son Jehoiakim is a despot, terrible leader. Jeremiah has to watch as he takes and just drives the entire nation into the ditch and just destroys it, and he's helpless. And then the final king, Zedekiah, who's just a puppet puppet king that the Assyrians um, place over them. And then ultimately Jeremiah gets exiled against his will to Egypt, and the the legend is that there he was killed. He was sawn in, in two. So it's a dark life in some ways. But here at the very beginning, God's going to come to him at a very young age and says, I am going to be with you. That your life is not meaningless. It's not random. All of these things that are happening uh, are not outside of my control. He comes and he gives him first a divine call. Look in verse 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So notice those four different words that God said, I have done. I formed you. I knew you. I consecrated you. I appointed you. And all this is before you were even born. Before I formed you, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you for a task. You know, it's this remarkable truth that God comes and tells him. You know, to be told, I formed you before you were even in the womb. I knew you then. Is to, the goal is to give Jeremiah a whole new center of gravity. A whole new way of conceptualizing his life and his world. To kind of move the center of his thoughts away from himself and to put it on someone and something else. And so as he would go through his life and suffer and struggle and sorrow, he should never think that somehow his life was a mistake. Somehow he wasn't the right person for this time. 
You know, he was called the weeping prophet. Uh, we can deduce from that that Jeremiah was probably a pretty sensitive guy. You look at his story, he was sensitive. He was timid. Uh, and as he's looking at his life, he's not to think that these characteristics of him were some type of like cruel joke or some accident. Like we would think that that's not the kind of person you need in those kind of times. Like you need somebody who's decisive and bold and charismatic and creative and that's not who he was. And God wants Jeremiah to know that he's not a mistake, that he was chosen and created for this purpose. And then you think about some of just the implications that come from before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were even born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You know, some of the implications, I mean, it means the Lord is the Lord of life. I formed you. I knew you. I appointed you. You know, right now, publicly, politically, one of the biggest kind of hot button kind of, I guess, ethical, theoretical questions is when does life begin? When does it begin? Does it begin when you are uh, a viable human and no longer dependent on uh, another for your life? So is it viability? And then if you talk about just a phase, then in the phase, like, when does that actually happen? I mean, does that happen when they're like <laughs> 5, 25, 35? When, when are we actually not dependent on another? So is it a moment of viability, or is it the first heartbeat? Like, is the first heartbeat the sign of life? Is that when real life begins? Or is it conception? Is that the moment? Look at God's perspective on when Jeremiah's life began. Even before conception, I knew you. I formed you. I consecrated you. I appointed you. And there's a remarkable thing for Jeremiah to know that, in one sense, we don't choose God. God chooses us. Jeremiah needs to know whose he is before he can fully understand who he is. And you think, like, when did Jeremiah start to belong to God? When did God take ownership of him? I mean, he was set apart before he was born. And this is one of kind of the beauties of the, the doctrine of predestination or divine election. This is not meant, something, this is not meant to be something that's meant to uh, kind of be a, a, a mystery where you debate and argue about and try and unravel a lot of the intricacies, uh, intricacies of it. Like the whole point is for assurance, is to encourage him. You know what Eugene Peterson says, my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There's something previous to what I think about myself. And it's what God thinks about me. So everything I think and feel is a response to who he is and what he's done. Jeremiah's life didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's truth didn't start with Jeremiah. He entered into the world in which the essential parts of his existence were already ancient history. And so too do we. So God comes with this, this incredible truth that he's, he's his, and then he has a calling. And as you go through Jeremiah, Jeremiah's call is not for everyone. The first chapter is mainly about his call and his time. It's not necessarily about our call and our time, but everyone has a call in a similar way. Notice, I have appointed you to something. And every person in this room has been appointed to something. So how do you discover it? How do you know it? You know, the first step is to do all that you know you're supposed to do. There's many things God's already told you to do, so you start there. 
And then the second step is start to seek his will to reveal it to your life. But I've appointed you to this. But now notice that should encourage him. That should strengthen him. Notice he hears this and he doesn't celebrate like David, like, whoa, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Notice how he responds to God. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So that, ah, that's not, ah, good news. It's, ah, no. Like, no, I, I, I can't do this. You've appointed, the only thing he heard, he didn't hear, I formed you, I knew you, I consecrated you. He heard, I've appointed you to be a prophet. And he said, uh, 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 no, I can't do that. And then notice he has two excuses. His first excuse is, I'm not eloquent. I don't know how to speak. I don't have the skills. I can't talk. And then his second uh, excuse is, I don't have the experience. No eloquence, no experience. I can't do this. Can't be appointed a prophet. And it's interesting, you look at different prophets who God calls and who kind of throw up their hands and throw up kind of the brakes and say, I can't, you know, we can't do this. You think about Isaiah. You look at Isaiah's call in Isaiah 6 when he gets, gets drawn into the throne room of God and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, Isaiah's hesitation was not that he wasn't skillful for the task, it's that he didn't have the proper purity or integrity for the task. You, know, you ladies who are going through Isaiah, isn't Isaiah a marvel? I mean, his skill with the quill is undeniable. He is one of the greatest writers who's ever lived in the history of earth. So he didn't doubt his ability to communicate. He doubted his purity in his communication. And so God was going to purify his mouth. But notice Jeremiah doesn't think he has the ability to do it. I don't have the eloquence and I don't have the experience. Similar to Moses, how he doubted his competence to do what God uh, has called him to do. And then God comes and he touches his lips in a minute and he puts his word in his mouth. So just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, if God's going to use you, for some people, like Isaiah, he needs to remove certain things from you to purify. And for Jeremiah, he needs to add certain things. So to be used, maybe there's something in your life that needs to be re removed for God to use you. Or maybe there's something that needs to be added. Jeremiah has him touch. But notice, he's reluctant. You know, this scene kind of reminds me, uh, the scene in the Lord of the Rings where Frodo kind of discovers the, what, the, what the ring is that he has. And he says, I wish I'd never seen this ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? And Gandalf says, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, nor for any power or wisdom, but you have been chosen. And you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits that you do have. Very similar to Jeremiah. Why? Why? Why have I been chosen for this? And then notice the excuses he makes. You think about it. What excuses are you tempted to make? What objections do you raise to resist his calling or to excuse failure in life? You know, I'm inexperienced. I don't have the skill. I don't have the strength. I don't have the resources. If you had my past, I couldn't be expected to do that. I haven't had the opportunities. We'll see in a minute that all of those excuses are just camouflage for fear. They're fig leaves. Ever since the garden, once we've sinned and it gets exposed, we try to hide and excuses are some of the fig leaves we hold up to try and cover our hiding. And notice how God responds to the excuses he makes. Here's a divine corrective. God puts them in check. 
He says, do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. I love God's response because he says, don't say I am only a youth. God, notice how God kind of argues or debates. He doesn't argue the truth of Jeremiah's excuses. Like he doesn't say, oh, no, you're you're more than competent to do this. You're Hilkiah's boy. I mean, who else could? I mean, you have more than enough skills. He doesn't say that. He said, yeah, yep, you're, you're probably right, actually. You don't have the skill or the experience. Your excuses are true and they're irrelevant because that actually doesn't matter. What matters is will I put my word in your lips and will I be with you? Your excuses are true. (laughs) They're just beside the point. The proper question is not who am I to do this? The proper question is are you calling me to it and will you be with me? Those are the two things that matter. And those are my two promises to you. I will give you the words. I will be with you. And if you have that, you'll figure out the rest. Experience will come. Eloquence will come. I love how he says, do not say. Because it seems for Jeremiah, that's the location of the real battle. Don't say this about yourself. Don't say. You know, if God could come to you now and say, stop saying. Don't say this about yourself. What would he tell you to stop? What do you say over and over? Don't say. Then look at verse 8. Don't be afraid. Now, do not fear is one of those interesting commands because it's, you know, often it's kind of like, you know, you tell yourself, you know, don't, it's kind of like telling a baby, stop crying. Um, You can tell them not to cry. Generally, they don't listen to you. And so you can tell me not to be afraid, but I don't know how to stop is probably what Jeremiah is thinking. So don't be afraid. And the reason he need not be afraid is because he's promised God's presence. See, if he had God's word on his lips and his presence by his side, then there's nothing he needed to fear. He didn't say, don't be afraid because it's not going to be that bad. Actually, he says, I will deliver you. He can then deduce that he's going to be in situations bad enough where he's going to need God to deliver him. So he actually has pretty good, you know, his fears aren't unreasonable. He's going to be in difficult situations. But the promise is that I will be with you. And the glory of the gospel and the gift of Christ is the promise that of both uh, word in us and presence with us. See, not only he had God's presence by his side, he had his words on his lips, and we can have the same things. That's one of Jesus' great promises to his disciples when they also, their hearts were deeply troubled on the night that he was going to be betrayed. And he says, peace I leave with you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Abide in me. You can abide in my presence. And the way you do it is by abiding in my word. You have the two same things that Jeremiah had. My word can be in you. And if my word's in you, you can be in me. And I will send the comforter. And the comforter will be in you so I can dwell where you are. So the presence and the promise. And when those two things come together in your life, what it gives to you, it can give you a joy that circumstances can't shake. It can give you a hope that no amount of suffering can break. It can give you meaning in your life that failures can't sink. It can give you a sense of identity that's so stable, it doesn't matter what anyone else says or does. Because the Word is with us, and we are with Him. 
two things promised to him. You know, Jeremiah had been appointed to preach and to be a prophet and given authority over the nations, not because of his skill, not because of his eloquence or his experience, but because of what God was calling him to do. And then notice what the Lord does in verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth. And he said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. The first thing he does is he, put, he touches his mouth and he calms his fears. You know, going back to the excuses you make, the excuses are often fig leaves that are covering our fear. That's the real heart. The real heart for Jeremiah, the real problem is he was afraid. So this morning, what are you afraid of? What are you resisting? Is it fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of exposure, fear of the unknown, fear of the uncertain? What are you afraid of? Then he touches him. And then notice he commissions him. See, I have set you this day over kingdoms, over nations. I mean, I wonder how Jeremiah as a 13-year-old, fearful, shy, timid kid heard that. I have set you over nations. Me? You talking about me? No. He says, I have given you authority. I've given you a position. I have set you over something. And you know, the reality is every person in this room, God has set you over something. I mean, even if you're only nine, you've been set over your body and your room. That's your domain. How messy is it? Take authority over it and clean it. Well, I'll save that for my kids are in here. You've been set over something. A personal, family, vocation. You know, one of the great crises of our age is a crisis of responsibility. People are taking responsibility for the things that they have been set over. What have you been set over? See, I've set you this day over nations. And then in verse 10, he continues and gives him his kind of job description, which in many ways is a demolition campaign. He, there's six words that he says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to pluck up and break down. You're going to destroy and your words are going to overthrow. They will build and they will plant. You know, in many ways, Jeremiah, if you just look at his life, his life is a tragedy. It's not a comedy. I mean, that kind of classical sense, not comedy like haha. You know, comedy is a story, you know, Aristotelian poetics. All stories are either tragedies or comedies. Comedies end in weddings, end in celebration. They end in happily ever after. Tragedies end in funerals. They end in death. They end in destruction. They end in defeat. And if you just look at Jeremiah's life, you would think his life is a tragedy. He's about to witness and live the unraveling of his nation. He is a very public figure who his nation will refuse to listen to, and it will disintegrate and collapse because they are not listening to the word of the Lord that comes through him. And so just the story of Jeremiah is a sad story of decline of God's people, where they slide from faith to idolatry to exile, where they fall from a position of blessings into a position of curses. And it's, in many ways, it's what makes this book so relevant for us. I was amazed when we were going back through Jeremiah and the men's Bible study how so many things were so relevant because in our life, public life is increasingly parallels to things that he would experience and the same things that caused him discouragement and he found depressing 2,500 years ago are things we battle with today. But look, God gives him six tasks. 
pluck up, uproot, tear down, destroy, and then overthrow. And so when the Lord uproots, when he tears down, when he destroys and overthrows a nation, there's not much left. And those first four parts can kind of be a summary, not just of Jeremiah's job description, but kind of the, the whole book, how it plays out. His word and his task is a dem demolition project. But if all you have, in essence, is Jeremiah's life, you might think it's a tragedy, but his life expands longer than his actual life. And if you just look at the book, it ends in sorrow, but you look at the whole story and it ends in celebration. Notice even in this, grace is going to have the last word. The first four words are words of demolition, but the last two are words of hope. You know, the grace will have the last word. And even the cities that have been torn down and plowed under, God will begin again. And they will rise up and there will be a new work and he will once again plant and he will once again build. And this is the way of the gospel and how he works. And Jesus himself was the ultimate culmination of the first four of those things, even saying my body is the temple. Jeremiah is going to watch as the actual physical temple gets decimated and destroyed. And then all of Jesus's disciples are going to watch as his actual body, the true living temple gets decimated and destroyed torn down. And then three days later, see the glory of it rising back up again in power. And this is actually how the Holy Spirit works in all of our lives. The first step, the first phase is the Holy Spirit has to tear down and uproot the sin in our life, has to bring us down so then we can then rise up again. So we celebrate in baptism. That's what we celebrate every single week in the cycle of our worship service. By confession of our sin, we confess who we are and that we're sinners in His sight. And then we receive the grace and mercy that we can rise again to new life. And that's what Paul celebrates, that what it means to be united in Christ, we're united into a death like his. So we've also been united in a resurrection like his, so we can experience new life. So how does this kind of apply to us today? One of the couple of the implications, applications, the meaning, and the purpose of our life is not up to us. You know, we can live in the delusion if we think we can do anything and be anything we want to be. You know, it's a particular 21st century American delusion. And it's even worse in some places than others. And on the one hand, I mean, the opportunities we have for learning and growth are unparalleled in the history of the world. I mean, you literally can learn anything on YouTube. I scored major brownie points yesterday with my wife because we had some leaking in our living room and had to take down a light fixture and she was gone and came back and the light fixture was back up. So, like, I, we've been married 15 years and I've never known you to be handy in any way at all. How did you do this? It's a miracle. <laughs> YouTube, baby. <laughs> YouTube. So, I mean, we can learn anything. And even like the, the theme of our town, like Lake Nona, one of our taglines is it's where you can have it all. You can have it all. Like you can have youth and wealth and health and success and you can have beautiful kids who never act up and every phase is beautiful and glorious and smooth and Pinterest perfect. You can have it all. And if you don't, the reason why you don't is there must just be something wrong with you. I mean, look, it's on YouTube. You can look. You can learn. Why do you not? And one of the things the gifts that Jeremiah is to, is to us is to help us realize, no, our, our times, our seasons, our ages, and they're often not in our hands. And what are we actually called to do? 
I was struck this week, and we'll kind of wrap up just looking at Acts chapter 1, because I was really struck looking at Acts chapter 1, because here Jesus is going to give to his disciples after he's been risen their meaning and their calling and their purpose in life. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And so often when we think about our calling, we can really wrestle with, right, who am I supposed to be? Like, am I meant to be a writer or a teacher or an astronaut or a YouTube influencer? We saw several years ago, that was the number one uh, career desire for fifth graders. What do you want to be when you grow up? But notice here, what are we called to be? He gives us three things. The how of our calling is you will receive power. So there's a power. You will receive power. And all throughout the New Testament, the power is to live the resurrected life. The power is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us that causes the word to dwell richly in our hearts so that we can then bear witness. The power in Ephesians is the power to be renewed in the inner man day by day. The power to be united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. The power to comprehend with all the saints what's the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. It's the, the power or it's the ability to believe that uh, we celebrate the one who can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. So we first, we, we, have, we have access to his power, and then the calling is very simple. It's to bear witness. It's to bear witness in word, bear witness in deed. He's going to send his disciples out to bear witness. And what are they to bear witness to? They're to bear witness that their sins have been forgiven. That's what he tells them in Mark. Go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, that your sins have been forgiven so that repentance and forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to all the nations. In Luke you know, what are we meant to bear witness to? John Newton, at the end of his life, the writer of Amazing Grace, said, there's two things I know. I am a great sinner. He is a great Savior. That's what we're called to bear witness to. And then we do that to the ends of the earth. So maybe here this morning you're wrestling with your calling. You're wrestling with, you know, how do you, you, know, how do you find yourself here? Maybe you think, how did I find myself at 10.30 on October 9th sitting in this elementary school cafeteria listening to you? How did I wind up here? And what are you called to do? And maybe you're anxious because your life hasn't planned out the way you thought. You thought it should be different. I should be different. I should be somewhere different. You know, our calling is in his power to bear witness. What position has he placed you in that he's calling you in that place to bear witness? You know, I read this week as John Chrysostom, a fourth century preacher in Constantinople, you know, the seat in the most powerful city in the world at the time. And uh, he said, just give me one generation of godly mothers and I will change this world. And he's wondering, where are you called to bear witness to for the glory of God? and the good of all people. You know, one of the reasons we take communion every week is because we're celebrating and declaring and proclaiming, bearing witness to the fact that this is the pathway by which we can have our sins forgiven. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and the same night that his disciples were so fearful and so scared and he promised them there's two things you need to, to, to live and to uh, endure and to have a life of meaning, purpose, significance, and accomplish things for my kingdom. Uh, you need my word in you and you need to be in me. He gave them this ritual, this ceremony that is a symbolic picture of what it means to have Christ in you. 
And so he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And part of the image of the food is that the way we get him in us is we have to eat, we have to digest, we have to internalize. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you gather, remember and celebrate, this is the price that was paid so you can have forgiveness. So every week we bear and experience the witness that forgiveness is made possible. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the gift of, of calling. We thank you for the gift of creation. I pray for everyone in here. Help them to see their life as a unique gift from you and help them to see and to know the unique places that you have placed them where they have a calling to bear witness to who you are and what you've done. Turn us away from looking inward to looking upward and then looking outward and help us all to be good and faithful servants. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.